time is now six o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, January 17th, 2024. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, the city of Monona ends a suspension of its new police pursuit policy put in place in the wake of a fatal crash earlier this month. Dane County officials cut the ribbon on a new emergency operations center. A state lawmaker is opening a grocery store on Madison's east side. And in the second half, an international conversation about the arts, some headlines from 57 years ago, and the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The Wisconsin Supreme Court is due to decide the boundaries of state legislative districts in the next few weeks. If adopted by mid-March, a new district map for state senators and representatives would be in place by November. Now, a Democratic law firm is calling for the state's high court to do the same for congressional boundaries, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. In a motion filed with the court yesterday, lawyers argue that the same logic the court used to find the current state maps unconstitutional should also be applied to the state's federal voting boundaries. Top Republican Robin Voss says a bill to legalize medical marijuana is on track to pass the state assembly before it adjourns in February. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the assembly speaker also says he refuses to compromise on the legislation, saying it had entailed months of negotiations. The bill faces an uphill journey in the state Senate, though. Leaders in that body have called it a non-starter. The proposal would legalize medical marijuana, but under many restrictions. The drug would be available only at five state-run dispensaries throughout Wisconsin. Community members and Democratic lawmakers have analogized the impracticality of that proposal to having only five DMV offices across the state. Democrats have repeatedly tried to legalize marijuana over the past decade, both medically and recreationally. Those bills have historically received an icy reception from state Republicans. Governor Evers has also proposed legalization in each of his state budget bills, and it's been stripped out each time by Republicans. Wisconsin is one of just 12 states that retain a prohibition on legal weed, medical or otherwise. Medical marijuana is growing more popular with voters, though. A 2022 Marquette Law School poll found that 61% of voters favored legalization, about 20, a 20-point 20 increase in popularity over the past 10 years, said the poll's author. That same poll marked the first time a majority of re- registered Republicans told pollsters they supported legalization. Legislators announced a series of bills today to reduce childhood obesity in Wisconsin. One bill would require students in kindergarten through middle school to get at least three hours of movement a week. Another would give extra funds to support two people on food assistance programs to buy locally produced fruits, vegetables, and other healthy foods. It would be a statewide version of Dane County's Double Dollars program. Three other counties besides Dane also run a version of the program, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. 
Nearly 15% of minors in Wisconsin are considered medically obese. That's three times higher than state obesity rates in the 60s and 70s, according to public health researchers at UW-Madison. Obesity among adults statewide is over 40%. The Silver Dollar Tavern, Madison's oldest family-owned bar, will pour its final drink on Saturday, February 3rd. The business has been owned by four generations of the same family, opening in 1933, just after Prohibition. It's proved a popular dive bar and indeed a rare spot to find table shuffleboard downtown. Now the family that owns the establishment has donated the long mahogany bar, vintage cabinetry, and neon signs to the Wisconsin Historical Society, reports the State Journal. And those vintage elements will live on in a new event space within the Wisconsin History Center, which is currently set to open on the Capitol Square in 2027. Some Madison bus routes are, once again, delayed or canceled during peak hours. And once again, that's due to a shortage of available buses. Metro Transit says that the bus shortage is due to repairs related to the harsh winter weather, from fixing the heat to repairing minor accidents from the icy roads. Here are the afternoon bus routes that Madison, uh, that Metro Transit say are delayed or canceled. The northbound and southbound 65, the westbound 75, the westbound route R, and general delays on the 75 and 38. Ten other trips were listed as potentially delayed or canceled this morning. Metro Transit shared this information in a service alert to riders last night. In addition to mixing up some of WORT's volunteers, the impact is also causing chaos at Madison schools. Madison East High School emailed families this afternoon to say that no Metro buses are available for school drop-off. In the email, MMSD urged students to, quote, chart your own route home from a nearby alternate bus pickup location by using Google Maps or visiting the Metro app, unquote. Today's disruption comes one month after Metro Transit announced a separate disruption to normal bus service in mid-December before the current icy conditions and negative temps hit Wisconsin. That time, the delays and cancellations were due to a failure to keep up with federally mandated safety inspections, which was attributed to the aftereffects of a staff shortage of mechanics. And those were the day's headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. The Monona Police Department will soon lift restrictions to its police pursuit policy, restrictions that were put in place after a pursuit on New Year's Day ended in a crash that killed three people. Monona City Council members and Mayor Mary O'Connor met Tuesday night to discuss the policy with Monona Police Chief Brian Cheney. Our reporter Jess Miller has the story. In a meeting Tuesday, the Monona City Council decided to allow the city mayor and police chief to lift temporary restrictions on the city's police pursuit policy. The restrictions were put in place after a pursuit on New Year's Day resulted in the deaths of three people. Around 9 p.m. on January 1st, officers from the Monona Police Department attempted to stop a vehicle near the corner of Nichols Road and Monona Drive in Monona. The driver fled, and Monona Sergeant Adam Knockreiner pursued the vehicle. During the pursuit, Sergeant Jonathan Matz of the Dane County Sheriff's Department deployed a tire deflation device, and the vehicle crashed in Cottage Grove, about five miles from where the pursuit began. 
All three people in the vehicle, 30-year-olds Rashad Nelson and Aaron Willis, and 19-year-old Ajaya Ray, died as a result of the crash. At Tuesday's meeting, Monona Police Chief Brian Cheney acknowledged the tragedy of the situation, but defended the sergeant's actions. This is not an instance in which you had an officer bumper to bumper. Unfortunately, and tragically, this operator of this vehicle decided not to stop and decided to likely push the limits of their driving ability and the vehicle. That is not a conclusive statement as that will be coming out from the Department of Justice. I'm telling you what I observed and the knowledge of this case uh, as I know it. The incident is under an investigation from the Department of Justice, but Cheney did not know when the results of that investigation would be available. In the days after the crash, the Monona Police Department temporarily shifted its pursuit policy to only pursue vehicles suspected of being involved in violent felony offenses. At Tuesday's meeting, one community member, a Dane County 911 dispatcher who was working the night of the crash, spoke against Monona's pursuit policy. The deadly crash that occurred on January 1st, 2024 was a direct result of a Monona police pursuit and has been the most horrendous incident of recklessness by police I've seen in my five years of working in public safety. Engaging in a pursuit for vague, suspicious reasons needs to be unacceptable. The Monona Police Department and the Monona Council need to permanently change the pursuit policy immediately to prevent further bloodshed and to keep the people they vow to protect us from alive. But several alders and Monona Mayor Mary O'Connor said a majority of the residents they spoke to were in support of the police pursuit policy as it was. If the restrictions continued, Alder Patrick DePula asked, Are we to just give up and not assign any sort of culpability to those that willfully engage in reckless and lawless behavior? City Council President Doug Wood added, Allowing people to just drive away when the police want to try to pull them over and essentially make police stops optional is simply not a sustainable policy. According to a story from the Wisconsin State Journal, Monona police engaged in 249 pursuits between 2019 and 2023. In 2023, Cheney said in Tuesday's meeting there were 59 pursuits. Four of those took place in the days leading up to the fatal accident, two within hours of each other on December 29th and another two on December 30th, one of which ended with a man crashing into a tree. The man survived and was found to be highly intoxicated. Cheney could not comment on how many total attempts to flee the police department encountered as that data is not kept. Chief Cheney added that while Monona's policy is more liberal than Madison's, is a professional police policy that is utilized by dozens of agencies in this state, hundreds across the country. The policy of the Dane County Sheriff's Office, which assists Monona Police in many pursuits, says that, quote, the decision to pursue a vehicle must be based on the deputy's conclusion that the necessity of immediate apprehension outweighs the risk to the community should the suspect remain at large. Prior to 2022, Monona Police officers could only pursue vehicles if they had probable cause to believe a violent felony was being committed or about to be committed. But in November of that year, the policy was eased back, instead requiring officers to consider a number of factors when initiating a pursuit, including, quote, the seriousness of the known or reasonably suspected crime and its relationship to community safety, and, quote, the apparent nature of the fleeing suspect, for example, whether the suspect represents a serious threat to public safety. Cheney spoke about the cause for that change in a city council meeting on November 7th, 2022. So I gave the example of a burglary, of a home burglary, where the item taken, even though the person was home, was property that did not rise to the level of a violent act. So we could not then try to get this resident's car back 
in a pursuit when the conditions were, you know, it's a dangerous uh, act of pursuing somebody. It's one of the most, as you and I spoke about, Alder, one of the most dangerous things that law enforcement can do. But we have an abundance of training and review to make sure we do these safely and that officers use their judgment and discretion and rely on their training. So what this now does allow us to do is try and make an effort to pursue that vehicle or that suspect and and get property back to hold people accountable versus before we weren't even able to pursue that vehicle if it took off from us. Much of the discussion Tuesday revolved around responsibility for the incident on January 1st. Chief Cheney said that the department reviews the body cam and dash footage of the officers and cars involved in all pursuits and that the January 1st incident underwent a full internal investigation. What this uh, sergeant did was within policy and was supported and under the law. The sergeant was abiding by law. One alder, Rick Bernstein, urged caution until more information became available. But Chief Cheney said he couldn't share further details of the incident until the DOJ had completed their investigation. For him and several of the other alders, the issue comes down to stopping for police. I think it would be incredibly helpful to know Why? if there's something in the policy that could be amended or revised to avoid this kind of tragedy. But no matter what policy I mean, we could just stop has, the police. And then yeah. what? We could just stop for the police, and then that tragedy would Sure, Patrick, that's true. That's true. And obviously there's a lot of reasons why people flee the police. Right. A lot of them are because of what they see on TV, right. how they get treated if they do stop. Yep. So there's a general fear of the police. In some cases, it can be justified. Alder Bernstein motioned to vote on keeping the restrictions in place until the results of the DOJ investigation were available, but the motion failed. Another significant detail to come out of Tuesday's meeting, the reason for the stop that resulted in the crash on January 1st. Previously, the only reason given publicly for the stop was that the vehicle was, quote, suspicious. On Tuesday, Chief Cheney revealed that officers attempted to stop the vehicle for reckless driving in a school parking lot. To close the topic on the agenda Tuesday, Alder Bernstein qualified his support of the restrictions. But I also believe Nobody should die for reckless driving. Not to analyze what happened on January 1st would be a dereliction of duty, as I see it, as a member of the council. Okay, Alder Dracula. One last thing. Um, driving at excessive speed is reckless driving. Fleeing from the police is reckless driving. And I think our police department was trying to prevent that from happening. For WORT News, I'm Jess Miller. Today in Fitchburg, county leaders and members of the emergency response community held a ribbon-cutting ceremony for Dane County's new Emergency Operations Center. WORT news producer Faye Parks was there. Dane County officials have been planning the Emergency Operations Center for nearly four years. In 2020, the county purchased a former fire station in Fitchburg for $1.8 million and spent an additional $7.8 million converting the space. Now, the new facility is operational. The next time there's a large flood or a big winter storm, Dane County emergency responders will be able to coordinate under one roof. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi was one of several officials to celebrate with a ribbon cutting this afternoon. It can sit over 40 people, has increased Wi-Fi and cell capacity, permanent video conferencing capabilities, multiple large screen monitors, as you see in this room, radio communications, and an audio system. The center will also house equipment and be used for first responder training. Charles Tubbs is the director of Dane County Emergency Management. He says their responsibilities have evolved over time. Originally, the department was assigned to handle grants 
equipment and other areas of that. Now we're involved in every aspect of emergencies, prevention, mitigation, recovery, response, and preparedness, not only in Dane County, but throughout the country. Until now, emergency management has operated out of several locations. Every time a large emergency occurred, staff had to be called in. And since they didn't have a dedicated response room, staff would also have to set up all the necessary equipment and phones. I would say an hour, 45 to two hours before we could really get the place set up because we got the emergency calls coming in, requests for assistance, help, etc., coming in, and we're still trying to set up the facility to make it run. That was extremely difficult. Now, emergency management is centralized in a single facility, and Tubbs says they're ready to begin work at a moment's notice. When minutes count, this is very, very, very important. There's no downtime. We got wars going on around our country. We're monitored. We have civil arrests going on around the country. We have an election that's coming up. We're very involved in helping with election security. There's no topic right now that emergency management does not cover. Parisi says Dane County first responders are well-coordinated and prepared. While this building is a very special building and important to us, um, what I'm really grateful for is the people who put their lives on the line to keep our community safe. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. 622 now, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A former strip club on East Washington Avenue is getting a new life as a grocery store. Go-O Grocery had its soft opening this weekend with a grand opening plan for next Friday, the 26th. Representative Samba Balde, who represents the surrounding neighborhood in the state assembly, is one of the co-owners, and he spoke with our news producer, Faye Parks, earlier today. Thank you for joining me, Representative Balde. Absolutely, absolutely. So, to start, can you tell us a little bit about Go-O Grocery? So, the Go-O Grocery concept started a few years ago. So when I was serving at the city council, you know, I was running a restaurant at the West Town Mall. You know, this was as a result of just, you know, trying to serve our diverse community. And so what I realized that uh, there is uh, more challenges to food access than just having a restaurant. So when I stopped operating at the West Town Mall, I tried looking at other parts of the city as to what I can do to help with lack of access to food. I decided to uh, look around in the eastern part of the city and saw that the city does have some pockets that were described as food deserts. And so one of the places we found was the former Visions nightclub. And so the other thing uh, with regards to that, it was becoming an issue with the city. So we thought not only will we provide access to food in that area, but also will save the city from fighting with the owners and you know all the nations that came along with it. My vision for it is really, in many cases, particularly poor people and people of color are very challenged in terms of access to quality food. And so that also contributes to their lack of good health. So first, I can contribute to the well-being of my community, to the well-being of the people of the city of Madison, but the state of Wisconsin generally. So they can have access to good food and hopefully with that healthy lifestyle. We deliberately decided to not order some of this stuff international or I should say nationwide. We are working with farmers to purchase animals from them for sell in the stores. So lambs, goats, even beef we are buying from our local farmers and processing at a local slaughterhouse in Rio. The vegetables uh, we are also buying locally. 
We are also reaching out to the Hmong community. We've had a series of meetings with them to tell them exactly what we could buy from them. When they're harvesting very soon, they would consider us or what we may order from them. The vision is giving access to a good food to all our communities so that that can help with their health care, their well-being, and hopefully uh, longevity. It's a business, but it's a business with a focus on the community as well. There will be a good chunk of African and Southeast Asian, but also a good chunk of Americans and stuff. So what happened is people like me, who is a first-generation immigrant to the United States, I grew up eating my Gambian African food. And so no matter how much I have lived here, I still uh, crave for that. I still want to eat jollof rice, for example. Uh, it's a special way of fried rice uh, that is predominantly West African. And so the ingredients that goes into that we will provide. Uh, the predominantly the seasoning and all the things that goes to it to make it real jollof rice comes from West Africa. So we will carry that. There are also so many other uh, food items that come from that region. For example, palm oil which is a cooking oil but not very well known to Americans particularly, we will be carrying that. So a lot of foods we will carry. You know, as far as Southeast Asian, we see uh, many food items. So we eat a lot of rice, you know, uh, and so we, we have varieties of rice that we will sell, but also seasoning, different kinds of seasoning and stuff like that. The other thing is we are catering to also a good chunk of the Muslim population is growing. Ramadan is coming, so we do have a lot of items that they would need when they break fast or begin fasting or something like, like dates and things like that. Those are the kind of things that uh, uh, we are wanting to provide. For the Muslim community particularly, they like to have their meat processed in a halal way, just like the Jews will do koso and things like that. All the animals that we process at the uh, slaughterhouse are processed that way so that we can cater to the Muslim community as well. But any other traditional way of processing food, uh, if they reach out and say this is the way we want our, 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 our food to be processed, we will try our best to serve them that way. And I'm curious, where does the name Go-O come from? So the name Go-O, so, you know, as you may know, uh, in many African countries, we have what we call tribes. Every tribe, particularly in the western part of Africa, has a language. So they speak their own languages. And so Go-O is a Fulani, F-U-L-A-N-I, it's a Fulani dialect or language. That means basically number one. And one translates to mean being the best. And so uh, the intent here is to be the best community-oriented grocery store, to give the best customer service possible, to give the best food options possible, to be the best neighbor possible. Since you announced establishing this grocery store, what kind of response have you gotten from the surrounding neighborhood? So, so far we have gotten only positive feedback. People are very excited. People are stopping by visiting, buying stuff, trying stuff, but some for just to see and have a good feel. So far, I have not had one negative feedback from the community, from the you know city dwellers, from around the state. Uh, uh, and so everybody seems to be very excited. And so more the reason why the go-o grocery is to make sure that we do our best to serve our community, give back to our community, uh, and make sure that we are a good neighbor. And so for now, I have not had any negative feedback from anybody. So you had the soft opening this weekend. When do you plan to hold the grand opening? 
So the grand opening, we just finalized this schedule uh, with some of the key players, particularly the city with the mayor and all that. So we will do the grand opening next week, Friday at 2 p.m. So we are working on now sending the invitations out to all the key players, the community members, uh, the media and everybody, so people know that we will be opening next week, Friday at 2 p.m. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Representative Balde. Thank you, and have a very good rest of your week. That was Representative Samba Balde, who represents Madison's east side in the State Assembly. On Saturday, he and his business partner, Jere Kujabi, held a soft opening for a new grocery store. Go-O Grocery is located on East Washington Avenue, where Vision's strip club used to be. They're preparing for a grand opening next Friday, January 26th. Representative Balde says that he plans for Go-O to address the area's food desert, providing healthy, culturally relevant foods for Madison area residents. now, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us. This week's Framing Culture was recorded in feature contributor José Carlos Texeira's home country, Portugal. He sat down with Joy Hanford, an American artist, ceramicist, community coordinator, and writer. Infused with lively humor, This conversation reflects on broader issues around art, craft, entrepreneurship, and cultural specificities and differences. Framing Culture Hello, good evening. In this edition of Framing Culture, I am in Guimarães, a city in the northern part of Portugal, and I am in front of Atelier Retiro. Hi! Bem-vindo! Hello! Welcome! Come on in! Hello, Joy. How are you? I'm great! José, how are you? I'm great. So I really wanted to come to visit you in your wonderful project. So for those at home or driving your cars who don't know, Joy Hanford is a wonderful friend and a very talented artist, educator and community organizer. And so I would like you to talk about this wonderful project, life project that you have here. Atelier Retido is my atelier, it's my studio where I work and I invite my community to come here and also work. We work a lot in clay, we have a lot of other community outreach programs, art programs, meetings, uh, we call them tortulias, where like talks, artist talks, debates. We also have a lunch club here, it's a community center, a lot of people come when it's raining to get out of the rain because Retido means a refuge, a retreat, a place that you can escape to. And it was really fortuitous that I found a perfect art studio space on a street named Retreat. So Joy, as I walk with you in this very cozy and very industrious space, I want you to tell us more about how do you arrive in Portugal? Like, as a summary, how does it happen? A Midwestern Mm -hmm. comes to Portugal and years later starts this wonderful space. I'm a Midwestern girl from all over the Midwest, Illinois, uh, Elkhorn, Wisconsin, Baraboo. I lived in Indiana, I lived in Ohio, I lived in Kentucky, I've lived all over. And then I went to a party and I met this Portuguese grad student and found myself 
unfortunately bitten by the love bug and I came on over. Um, I started coming part-time in 2005. I immigrated to Portugal in 2010 and I opened my community pottery studio in 2020. Did you always have this idea that you'd come to Europe, that you'd open a space, a community place like this, or it's something that sort of emerged in you as you start sort of figuring out the next steps in Europe? 100% always thought I would open a community pottery studio or have a pottery studio. And I am an artist first and foremost, but my medium has not always been clay, but has I've always been passionate in clay. So I was very lucky that I used to run a community pottery studio in Indiana University. It was a community studio. It did not have to do with the academic program. It was for the community. And that was in Bloomington, Indiana. There's a Bloomington in practically every state in the Midwest, but I was in Bloomington, Indiana at Indiana University. It was in the union, the student union, and it was a hundred year old pottery studio. And it was such a pleasure to be the resident potter there and the community coordinator there. And we also had dark rooms and we had drawing classes. And so it was something that I always knew I would get back to. But with all things in immigration, nothing is easy. And it took me 10 years to get back in. I did a lot of ethnographic pottery here in Portugal. I worked in the museums. I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of travel writing and a lot. I used to work in the textile industry as well and all of this has influenced my work now which has been really wonderful but it just took time to build up the resources again to open a community pottery studio and I'm just very grateful and lucky to be doing this work for a second time you know it's it's a fascinating process but it's also one made of struggles to be in a foreign country trying to open a project like this so tell me I want to go in a second more in depth about your artwork, but how do you compare, if you can compare, the pottery sort of community studio that you had back in America and this one with a different culture, with a different set of goals probably, how do you compare the both and what is the energy that you can get from both places and from both cultures? The culture behind a community art studio in the United States is quite open. It's not a new concept. In Portugal, a hobby aspect or a we say passatempo, a pastime in the arts outside of painting, drawing, or photography is not something that they are used to. It has always existed. I'm not saying it's, it's, but it's not in the lexicon, if you will. Whereas in America or let's say England, Scotland, et cetera, another culture, another place outside of the United States, you have that aspect of, I'm having a hard time. I'm going to take a pottery class. I don't know what I'm doing with myself. I'm going to take a pottery class. I'm divorced. I'm going to take a pottery class. I'm sad. I'm going to take a pottery class. So, so it becomes this sort of therapeutical, cathartic yeah, process with your hands. Yes. Uh, working in clay because we all throughout humanity have worked in clay. It's the oldest art form and it was our first industrial product, ceramics. So outside of those two things, we have a really, in a different way, and I think it comes straight out of the new contemporary arts movement post-World War II, we have a whole different aspect, especially in the United States, on craft as craft is vocation, but craft can be elevated to a high art. Mm -hmm. That high art has value and merit, whether it be therapeutic or as a product, an art product to purchase and collect, just like you would a painting. 
Exactly. And, and and that's actually super important that you're mentioning that because as we previously discussed and we share about these important topics, what is fascinating and I think very valuable about projects like yours in Guimarães, in northern Portugal or in other in other locations is the fact that there is or there has been a tendency to divide what you consider high mm -hmm. or more conceptual art and the crafts. But if you go back, of course, in time to a reality called uh, Bauhaus, you realize that these two things were actually not necessarily disconnected. So yes, and that comes straight out of the movement that I was talking about before, the post-World War II movement. So um, when the Bauhaus decided to disband because they did not want to support the political and totalitarian regime that was developing around them and already existed. A lot of them immigrated and brought great ideas to the United States specifically. I studied a long time in North Carolina at Penland School of Crafts and a, a lot of those instructors came straight from Black Mountain, Black Mountain College. And so I have always been raised with this idea that as long as you meet, reach a master level in any field with a creative bend. You are an artist, you are a fine art artist. It has no delineation between the two, which mm -hmm. was a Bauhaus idea. Mm -hmm. And coming to Portugal, it's very different because they don't have that. That doesn't exist. Uh, pottery is factory work. Mm -hmm. Weaving is factory work. Uh, embroidery is just what you do. It's, you know, a lot, a lot of these things that have modern crafts movements outside of Portugal are only now getting to have that creative bend here I am considered an artisan or a craftsperson. Uh, it's very hard to explain my passionate respect for what I do and that it's art first, craft last. I think things are changing though. Yes. Things, the labor is being rescued to a higher, more elevated place. Mm -hmm. And I'm so happy that uh, you are doing this work because it's expanding. Oh. And it's going to, uh, and it's probably it's already inspiring others. You can only say that. Yes. Oh, well, that's very kind. Like I said before, uh, community pottery studios have existed. Mine is not the first. Mm -hmm. um, it's an open business plan. Uh, it's been around since post-war, definitely. And before, if you look at places like Penland and other craft schools that always had this ability. Specifically here, uh, I worked in the Museum of Systems in Guimarães in ethnographic pottery and trained in um, a specific art form of pottery that is dying out. It's a decorative form of pottery called the Cantarines dos Numbrados. And when I trained in that, it was to make sure it doesn't die. As I move around in the space with Joy, I see a plethora, I mean, a really fascinating sets of objects. I can see more, I would say, more functional objects, but also some that have such a, a powerful, creative and personal uh, dimension. So can you talk a little bit about what you are doing here yourself? I'm very lucky that I can have a lot of artists. We have day jobs and a lot of artists, our day jobs are teaching. So I teach classes here as well. I make a lot of functional work as well. I teach people how to make functional work. You're in a full pottery studio. I have seven full time members who use my pottery studio and the equipment to make their own work. Then I have students, so you're surrounded by a lot of tiny pots, baby pots, little pots, learning pots, you know. And then um, you have my work here, so I have 24 years experience in clay. I make art, I make utilitarian art, and I make sculptural art. My work is brutal, It's um, I leave my mark heavy in the clay, and I leave a lot behind. So you see three and a half years of work here, 
of mine and the rest of the people, everyone who works here, I have taught because there was no training specifically on the ceramics wheel. There's lots of hand building in Portugal, um, but the ceramics wheel is what I really focus on because there's a lack of that education here in the north of Portugal. And may I ask you, um, while we dive deeper into your own practice, if you could come up with some major concepts and ideas that drive what you do, what would those be? I believe the main theme of my work is legacy. My last body of work is all focused on the urban decay of the city that I'm living in. My city is a very fast gentrifying city and very inspired by this historic medieval city center of Guimarães and the urban decay that is being washed away. And I'm trying to preserve that. Um, and most of my work is about legacy. It's about honoring the time and the million little steps all of the days that led to the day that the thing was made have as much value as the object it is the legacy of the person making the work it is the legacy of the people who taught the person to make the work it is the humanity behind the whole concept and that's why it is so important to me to continue to work in clay mm -hmm. because it's our oldest art form so thank you so much Thank you, José Carlos Teixeira. You gosto muito de ti. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, what a difference a week makes. We essentially changed seasons since I was last on with the nearly nine degree monthly temperature surplus that we had going uh, into last Friday actually being almost wiped out then uh, over the intervening five days, uh, much of which was, was spent uh, below zero. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, despite today's warm up, and I'll note that we, we did hit 13 degrees this afternoon, uh, plus another uh, comparatively mild day tomorrow, January as a whole will uh, finally achieve colder than normal status uh, this coming weekend as another Arctic air mass rotates southeastward into the area around the polar vortex centered up over western Hudson's Bay. But that below normal status for January may not last uh, really more than a day or two. A pattern change as abrupt as the one that set in this past Saturday behind the snowstorm is waiting in the wings to make slush, basically, out of that foot of snow that we saw come down as we head into next week. Uh, if you have a look at the water vapor image in North America that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage this evening, you'll be able to see the great whirl of the west, western hemisphere polar vortex that I was mentioning wheeling counterclockwise over the uh, eastern half or two-thirds of Canada. The coldest air currently, uh, and perhaps surprisingly, is actually not that far north up in that circulation. It's not up towards the Canadian archipelago, but rather in the region just west of James Bay and northwest of uh, Lake Superior. Uh, as I mentioned in the Monday morning forecast, the disruption to the polar vortex that happened over the pole last week sent the cold air southward down into the mid-latitudes while warmer air then replaced it up further north. And the current surface readings up in Canada certainly reflect that. So uh, while we'll get the remaining Arctic air up in Ontario to stream southward across Wisconsin this coming weekend, after that, much of southern Canada will re-warm re again as the cold air returns to its more normal position back up in the highest latitudes. 
So the big gyre that you can see on the water vapor over eastern Canada should be lifting northeastward next week towards Baffin Island and the Davis Strait, while a more west-to-east jet branch uh, returns on that image across the high latitudes of Canada, which will generally cut us off from the Arctic air and keep much of next week uh, near freezing or even above. Uh, it's somewhat unclear how the sensible weather is going to play out next week, but with a generally weak winds aloft the way it appears, and few, if any, strong weather systems moving through, uh, it's possible we may see a good bit of low cloudiness set in, and perhaps some fog from time to time as well, as meltwater begins to pool pretty much across the upper Midwest, uh, without much wind then to mix the resulting atmospheric moisture uh, either upward into the drier air above or out of the region somewhere. Uh, in the meantime, though, we're going to have a couple of little weather systems flying past us uh, tonight through early Friday ahead of this cold air invasion that's coming. Uh, the first is visible actually on the water vapor this evening, spinning uh, towards, uh, towards us from across Colorado. Uh, that'll mostly miss us to the south later on, but a flurry or two is possible. And then the next system behind it, which is currently up over the Puget, Puget Sound region on the water vapor, that'll produce a somewhat better showing for snow tomorrow evening in the overnight as it follows on basically in west-to-east fashion. So we may get an inch or two out of that going into Friday morning. So anyway, back to the uh, details for the upcoming five days. The skies will see uh, uh, continuing... The skies will continue to see increasing clouds from west to east going forward tonight with passing flurries possible uh, in the wee hours, uh, which may leave uh, just a dusting of snow, probably not much more than that. Temperatures will hold in the low to mid uh, single digits overnight given uh, cloud cover and uh, west to northwest winds still up at 48 miles per hour. Tomorrow the skies should see some clearing uh, into the midday hours, allowing temperatures I think to reach 10 or 12 degrees again uh, despite northerly winds up at 48 miles per hour. Clouds will increase later in the day and going overnight, and uh, light snow will break out uh, from west to east across the area, probably starting sometime in very late in the afternoon or early evening. And then we'll see a period of moderate snow probably through the late evening or midnight or so, putting down maybe an inch or two in spots. Temperatures will drop to the mid-single digits after the clouds finally clear out as we get towards, uh, uh, towards morning, and uh, northwesterly winds will start to increase to about 10 to 15 miles per hour. So Friday will be uh, breezy and also cold with temperatures recovering just to the upper single digits and skies remaining partly to mostly cloudy. Northwesterly winds at 12 to 17 miles per hour will stay uh, active in the 10 to 15 mile per hour range overnight with temperatures dropping back to the upper single digits uh, below zero. And Saturday will be uh, sunnier but still cold with a high temperature around 10 degrees and northwesterly winds still up at 8 to 12 miles per hour. Lighter winds overnight along with uh, mostly clear skies may allow uh, one last night down below zero, perhaps in the five to 10 below zero range. And then winds will back southwesterly going into Sunday with temperatures responding uh, to the teens during the day, but continuing to rise then as we go overnight into Monday on what will be steady south to southwest winds overnight at 12 to 18 miles per hour. And I think we may indeed crack the freezing mark, mark already on Monday of next week. Then a lot of clouds and melting after that, the way it appears. It's currently 11 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 2 degrees. Winds are out of the southwest at 7 miles per hour. Uh, passing high clouds over the station, about 20,000 feet, and the barometer's at 29.94 inches of mercury and rising.
We go now to January 1967, as the UW plans to tear down the historic Old Red Gym, city sexism survives, and the war in Vietnam claims two pergolders. Stu Levitan reports on the news from 57 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, January 1967. As 1967 opens, it appears the university's old red gym will soon be closing and coming down, just as campus planners called for in a master plan adopted in 1960. It was a point of statewide pride and celebration when the Armory Gymnasium was dedicated in 1894, but now it's badly deteriorated, and administrators think the lakeside site begs for better use. It will be raised this summer, University President Fred Harvey Harrington tells the Regents on January 15th, because it won't be needed once the massive new gym out by the Western Playing Fields opens that fall. He says there's, quote, considerable disagreement over whether the site should be used as a faculty lounge, guest house, or some other purpose, but it declares emphatically that the fortress-like facility, quote, should be raised. Unfit for anything other than sweaty exercise, adds University Vice President Robert Clodius. UW student Alan E. Shepard won't be exercising at the Red Gym for a while, as he is sentenced to a year in jail, a year's probation, and ordered to undergo psychiatric treatment after pleading guilty to possession of marijuana. Dean of Students Joseph Kaufman says the Committee on Student Conduct will also consider whether to impose any university discipline on the 21-year-old Madison native. And in other UW-AODA news, the City Committee has proposed extending the dry zone around campus in which retail liquor stores are prohibited. A subcommittee of the City University Coordinating Committee wants to move the southern border from Dayton Street to Regent Street and the eastern end from Lake Street to Francis. The dry zone has not been changed since it was established at the end of Prohibition in 1933. And the city cracks down on another aspect of student life, banning scooter and motorcycle parking on State Street and most of University Avenue, except in specially designated stalls. Lots of news from the public schools, starting with the traditional New Year's Day vandalism. This year at Orchard Ridge School, where juveniles smash 44 windows in 18 shades, their parents pay about $400 of the $761 in damages. The school board ends a lengthy stalemate over contract terms with its teachers, approving an agreement with Madison Teachers Incorporated that keeps teachers among the lowest paid in the area, but establishes the union's right to compulsory arbitration of grievances. Madison schools will pay starting teachers $5,500 in the 68-69 school year. Most area systems will pay $6,000. That same night, the board approves $408,000 in contracts for an athletic facility in Grandstand at James Madison Memorial High School, which veteran board member Arthur Diney Mansfield extols as a year-round multi-sport complex to be available for public use. Deviating from its standard practice, the board lets Roberta Leidner, representing the Capital Community Citizens, raise questions about the proposal. 
A citizen can't just stand up and ask to be heard, Superintendent Robert Gilbert says, but the board lets Leidner speak before overriding her concerns and agreeing with Mansfield. The legendary university athlete, in his 30th year as the Badger baseball coach, advocates forcefully for the facility, which will be named in his honor after his death in 1985. It's the cost of schools, Mayor Otto Feske tells the League of Women Voters Luncheon, that has almost single-handedly caused the city tax rate to rise over the last 11 years from 36 to 47 mills. The cost of city services have stayed about $10 per thousand dollars of property value, he notes, while school costs have jumped from 15.7 mills in 1957 to 26.3 mills this year. Fesky and the council continue to oppose creation of a unified school district, which would give the school board independent budget authority. A legal setback for feminism, as Judge Richard Bardwell voids on jurisdictional grounds, the 1966 Industrial Commission ruling that Madison discriminated against Ruth Fay when it denied her a bartender's license. Bardwell finds it, quote, clearly reasonable to conclude that the city denied Fay a license, quote, because she was a female, but holds that Industrial Commission jurisdiction is limited to employment relationships and does not cover the issuance of licenses. Democrats in the state Senate make a modest bit of history by choosing as their leader the young Madison attorney Fred A. Risser, their first floor leader from outside Milwaukee since another young Madison attorney, Gaylord Nelson, nabbed the top spot in 1951. Risser, an unabashed liberal, is able to put together a winning coalition because the conservative and liberal factions from Milwaukee could not agree on a candidate. He'll have his work cut out for him, as Democrats hold only 12 of the Senate's 33 seats. Risser maintains a law practice with his father, Fred E. Risser, whose own career as a Republican state senator was ended in 1948 by Gaylord Nelson. And three deaths to note this month. Thomas R. Hefty, 81, the son of Swiss immigrants who rose from being a part-time bookkeeper to president and chairman of the First National Bank, dies January 19th after breaking his hip in a fall at his home in Maple Bluff. And two young men of Madison die in Vietnam the same day, January 12th. Major Charles Toma, 30, East High, 1954, UW Class of 1958, dies after being shot in the head by a sniper while leading a search-and-destroy mission of the Black Lion 2nd Battalion, 28th Infantry, 1st Infantry Division, in the jungle northwest of Saigon. The son of retired Army Colonel Henry C. Toma, 4182 Nakoma Road, and Mrs. Clifford Engel of San Francisco, Major Toma was captain of the cross-country team, a member of the track and wrestling team, and a member of Phi Kappa Sigma at UW. Recipient of the Army Commendation Medal with Oak Leaf Clusters, he is survived by his parents and his wife, the former Beverly Hubbard, and three sons. Army Private First Class Thomas E. Pete Matouche, 21, East High Class of 1964, son of Mr. and Mrs. Joseph J. Matouche, 1959 East Washington Avenue, is killed when the truck he's in goes over a landmine. Matouche was drafted shortly after high school graduation and sent to Vietnam in August 1966. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning Listener-supported WORT News Team, 
I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Jess Miller was our reporter. Special thanks to feature contributors Jose Carlos Texiera and Stu Levitan. Katie Gergella is our engineer on Wednesday evenings. Faye Parks produced the newscast, and Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>